following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Okay, Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Oh, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even then the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day and darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows them very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Luann. Good morning, Park Church. Good to see you all. Uh, My name is Neil. serve as one of the the pastors here. Uh, We are in the last psalm of this summer. Next summer, we will wrap up the entire Psalter. So we'll we'll do Psalms 140 through 150. Uh, Rumor has it we might be in the book of Proverbs the summer after that. But this will conclude either 12 or 13 summers in Christ in the Psalms. Uh, working all the way through. Was anyone there for Psalm 1? I'm just so curious. Yes! 
the Edlins. I, I snuck in. I, I was, I, that was like one of my, my first Sundays at Park Church was Psalm 1. Um, so yeah, we're, we're looking at Psalm 139. It's, it's got a lot of quotable portions to it. Also some that are a little like, huh, toward the end there, like slay the wicked. Tell me more. Like how, how does this fit with the tone of the, tone of the Psalms? We're going we're gonna to dive into that together. Uh, but let's, let's pray. Let's ask God to, to strengthen us through his word. Uh, God, you're so merciful to us to give us your word, uh, knowing that it's not required that you would reveal yourself to humanity. It's not required. We can't expect of you that you would reveal your son to us, that you would give of yourself and, and tell us who you are and what it looks like to, uh, to have right relationship with you, to, to know your love. Uh, none of that can be expected of you, and yet you give it. You give of yourself. And, and here we have the, the sweet gift of, of, uh, of singing to you, of, of yet again confessing our sin, being assured of forgiveness that is found in Jesus and declaring who you are. And now coming before your word to learn more about uh, who is this God that we serve? Who is this God that, that desires relationship with us? And what does it look like to live before your face in your presence given who you are? So please, Spirit, would you, would you search us and know us, and just as it, it says in this psalm. Uh, places that are, that are grievous, places that we've, we've grown dormant or cynical, um, the, the, the areas of darkness in our lives, may you just light those up with your presence, with your, your pursuit of us. And may we know your voice, to know that it's tender, that it's good, it's for our good, and that you want to meet with us now. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I grew up in rural Indiana, uh, very rural, a town called Needham, Indiana. Would you all say that with me, Needham, Indiana? So I did this last service, I just feel so known. Like no one knows Needham, Indiana. We prided ourselves in, in having uh, the smallest post office in the country until they shut it down because it didn't get enough business. So they were like, <laughs> it's done. Um, and even us, we were not even in Needham. We were like 10 minutes away from Needham, but that was the closest post office, I guess, that we can kind of have an address with. Uh, so we grew up on our glorious two acres of land, not point two, not point two, which is even a big lot, I think, in Denver, but two, full two acres of land. And we would often spend, you know, especially summer days, just exploring the backyard. We would kind of go up to the back end of our property line, and there was this wooded area. And in our young minds, we're like, this is the vast unknown. You know, like this is this forest. It probably goes on for hundreds of miles. And sometimes we would, we'd go explore. I remember one time in particular, uh, my cousin and I, we were maybe eight or nine, and we, you know, we got decked out in our camouflage. We had our canteen, you know, filled with our, our water and probably put some, some paint on our faces and maybe had like a toy pistol or something. And we're like, all right, you know, walking stick. And we're going to go find uncharted territory here in rural Indiana. We imagine we're some sort of Lewis and Clark or something. Um, but as we went, uh, pretty soon we, we saw a tree stand where clearly a, uh, a hunter frequented uh, to do his hunting. And went a little further and we're over in this dry creek bed where we saw trash and other things. And looking back, it's probably like where the, the rural Needham, Needhamites uh, teenagers would party um, on the weekends. Um, and we, we're like, okay, let's keep going. Like, we're going to find 
the places where nobody else knows. Like if, if, if God knows where we are, like barely, because this is, this is where we're going. Like we're way out here on the edges. And then we come to a soybean field and I see a house. Like, oh, that's Tom's house. It's Tom. You know, Tom, who rode the bus with me, he, his was the mile-long driveway where we did like the, the bus stop turnaround. And sometimes we'd have to wait for Tom for a long time. So he'd be walking down his driveway. Like, oh, there comes, comes Tom. Like, we thought we were in the unknown, the abyss, the uncharted territory, exploring something new. But we became pretty demystified when I could probably look back and squint through the trees and still see our house. And if I listen closely enough, probably hear my mom calling us for lunch. And I wonder how often we have a, a similar pursuit or meandering in our own relationship with God. Now, we imagine that uh, the things that we're building, investing in our career, kind of making the decisions we are, building our friend groups, doing the things that humans do, that we imagine we're doing this outside of the purview of God. A lot of times, I don't think it's all that sinister, but we can drift so easily and so quickly. And we're investing our time and our energy and our resources in really good things, and we're paying attention to our schedules and who we're spending time with, and uh, we're going to work and trying to take the things that God has given to us and do things with them, and, but all the while imagining I'm, I'm probably outside of the scope of what God is aware of. At best, he's disinterested. He may know, but it's not something he's engaged in. He's not really pursuing me in the midst of it. It's not something that he really cares about. It's kind of irrelevant in how God sees things. Maybe at other times, we'd like for God to get off our backs a little bit. It's like, and if, if I could just get outside of the, the scope of his voice or his reign or like kind of him, his menacing sight down on my life, I just want to kind of move away from that. If I can get rid of any sense of him knowing what I'm doing, I can just do the things that I want to do. Well, this psalm paints a different picture of the presence of God, of the knowledge of God, this, this vast and beautiful God who knows perfectly every detail of our lives, that, that he is inescapable in his presence. And that's actually good news for those who would turn toward him. It's good news for all those who would come before him and trust him. I think even in that same backyard that we used to explore a few years prior, um, I was in a, a friendly rock fight with my neighbors. Um, and you know, innocently just chucking stones across the fence until one of the neighbor's friends grabbed a, a concrete chunk of some kind off a sidewalk or whatever. And I was turned around and it got heaved over and smacked me in the back of the head, hit an artery. And you'd better believe the nearness of my mom was my good in that moment. As I run inside and I'm like, she's like, what's going on? And I turn around and it's like, spewing blood out the back of my head. She's like, okay, this is, I need to save my son's life. Um, God's nearness is life for all those who would turn toward him. And that's what we're going to see in this psalm. This psalm is both strongly theological and intensely personal. Uh, it's, as one author put it, it's a celebration of God's invasion of our privacy. Uh, God is everywhere seeing everything, and it's a little bit like, ooh, it's kind of invasive. Is this oppressive? Is this good? Uh, what do I do with this? What do I do with this immense God that I cannot escape? Another author said, God is at once a glorious and an oppressive presence. Really what we have in this psalm is the, 
the, the objective truths, the, the theological truths that we can state about God begin to be settled upon our hearts and our minds and our souls in personal ways. Who God has declared himself and shown himself to be, we need in the deepest part of our lives. And that's what this psalm lays out for us. It's broken into to two broad sections. The first 18 verses, verses 1 through 18, uh, is really painting this picture of this vast and beautiful God. Say, this is who he is in all of his fullness. And then in verse 19, it turns through the last several verses. This is the right response. This is what we do in response to the God that we see laid out in this hymnic adoration of a psalm. So look with me. Starting verse one. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. He's just declaring as a general truth. God, God, you're able to see into to the recesses of my heart. You see all of my decisions. You see the full scope of my life. Nothing is hidden from you. This is just a truth about the way we live our lives, about who he is. And really, it's hitting on our first $20 theology term. We've got a few of those for this morning. God's omniscience. God's omniscience. We could define it this way. God knows everything such that there is no avoiding his attentive intimate and extensive awareness. There's no avoiding it. The psalmist gets into more detail. Verse two, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, the language used here is speaking specifically of of what goes on behind closed doors, what we do inside of our homes, with our friends, roommates, families, things that in many ways are are hidden from the rest of the world. You know, this is not our public life. Maybe a a small handful of people uh, will see some of these aspects of our lives. We imagine, yeah, there's not a a huge audience, like not a lot of visibility. Maybe it's like my roommates and Alexa, or, you know, it's like at least they potentially hear, which is always, it's always ominous when Siri starts talking to me. I'm like, I wasn't talking to you. It's like, it just tells me you're always listening. Um, Yeah, Alexa... Got, we sent Alexa to Sheol, if you will, um, a few years back. Um, so in our homes, what, 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 what happens in our homes? Second part of verse two, you discern my thoughts from afar. So now this is getting into the interior life. Things that we imagine are even hidden from those who are closest to us. Our desires, our motives, our longings, what we daydream about, what we think about, what we, what we hope for. Verse three, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Now it's speaking to, to more of our public life. As we, we leave our homes, we go out into our, our work life, the relationships and networks that we're a part of, how we spend time with neighbors, uh, on our work trips, the traveling we do, the places that we spend time, how we make decisions, what we do with our money. All of those things are under the full view of God's attentive awareness. Verse four. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. So this is God knowing not only what we say and how we say it, but he knows as those, those thoughts that will lead into communication, some form of communication, he knows them before they've even been formed and come out. He knows them at a distance and he knows them better than we do. I wonder if you're feeling it yet with, with just the, he's really trying to hit on, it's like God is, He's seen everything. But there is no escaping the scope of his perspective and his view. And it it maybe feels a little bit oppressive at this point. Um, If not, I have an old theologian to read to you, which perhaps will do the trick. Um, A.W. Pink describes God's omniscience this way. 
God knows everything. Everything possible, everything actual, all events, all creatures of the past, the present, and the future. He is perfectly acquainted with every detail in the life of every being in heaven, in earth, and in hell. Nothing escapes his notice. Nothing can be hidden from him. Nothing is forgotten by him. He never errs, never changes, never overlooks anything. I think it's, it's fitting, and the, and the psalmist is probably feeling some of this as well as he's pouring out this psalm. A little bit of the squirminess. Like, ugh, so everything. Like, this is just a word, but that's a reality that is experienced in our daily lives. God knows everything about us, even better than we know ourselves. And you can feel maybe a little bit of this, at least ambivalence, starting to come out in verses five and six. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. This can be understood and is, you know, a protective, uh, a hemming in, a guiding presence um, of God, but it's also like laying your hand upon me. It's like, sometimes it feels a little bit heavy. This is maybe a little bit too much for us to bear, to consider, but he knows everything. In verse six, such knowledge is, is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Another way you could translate this is not just too wonderful, but it's just too much. It's too much for me to really bear and to consider because the mind of God is that vast. And I'm not really sure I want the fullness of my life, interior life, exterior life, coming under his vantage point. But here we have a picture of God's omniscience. And as the psalmist is considering this, it's like, hmm, what about fleeing from this presence? What about fleeing from this God who sees everything? And you can see him kind of entertaining a little bit, again, kind of that ambivalence, verse seven. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? He's not necessarily saying that he wants to flee from his presence, but I think all of us can feel at different times and in different seasons where it's like, maybe I do. Maybe I kind of want to come out from under God's all-seeing vantage point and in his presence. Maybe I just want to kind of chart things a little bit differently over here. I don't want to pay attention to what he has said about it. I don't want to know the fact that he actually sees the full extent of my life. And here we're moving from God's omniscience to God's omnipresence, which we could define this way. God is everywhere such that there is no escaping his deliberate, pursuing, and overcoming presence. He's everywhere. Psalmist goes on in verse eight. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. And here we have something of the, the height, the depth, the length, the breadth of God's presence, of his pursuing, seeking after attentive presence. You know, to ascend to the heavens, you know, into the heavenlies, where, where God dwells, where he reigns perfectly. Uh, like, God, you're there. The highest of places, God, you are there. Sheol, this is, is the, the grave, the place of the dead. At times can be used for, for wasteland or for darkness. It's like even, even in the grave, death cannot separate us from God's presence, for he is that all-encompassing. He is that vast in his presence. If I take the wings of the morning, so looking to the dawn, looking to the east and saying, what if I, what if I went this way? 
And and, and to the sea, the sea was to the west of Israel, even geographically, and they always saw that as kind of the the abyss. I mean, it was out out there, like this is the the chaotic waters to the west. So we're getting this full-scope picture of there's nowhere that I can go from your presence, though we often try. I think it's worth us considering even the ways that we try to escape the presence of God. Where are the places that we try to, uh, to, to leave a particular relationship or conversation because things were pressed on in our lives and it's like, ah, that's uncomfortable, that's disturbing, something that I want to protect, I'm going to move on over here. But a lot of times when we do that, we actually find a very similar dynamic begin to play out in another relationship. And then if we leave that, whether it be a work environment or our church or our family of origin or a good friend or a community we're a part of, you begin to see God recycles those same things until we say, okay. I'm going to receive what you have for me. You're trying to speak something to me. Yes, absolutely, there are times that we need to to move away from different particular spaces that are abusive or unhealthy in different ways. But I think too often we miss what God might want to do in his pursuing presence through others, through community, through relationship, and so we flee. Maybe for those of us who you know, are not from Denver. Maybe you came to Denver from elsewhere and it's worth considering amidst all the different reasons and motives and things that we're often not always aware of. Were you trying to escape something? There was a, there un, uh, you know, some business that was unattended to, some area with, with your family or your background, your culture, or things that, that were just stirring. It's like, I, I need to escape. I need to get out. Did Denver become kind of your sense of escape from things that need to be paid attention to. God will continue to press these things into your lives. He's still present. He's still kind. He's still pursuing. And this is what he does. He comes after us. It doesn't always feel good, but it is for our good. It reminds me of, well, one of the the compilations of the, the Psalms titles this Psalm, The Hound of Heaven. Uh, it's after a, a poem by uh, a guy, Francis Thompson, in the, the 19th century. I want to I read just a, a portion of it. Um, it's long, and I recommend it, but it's th- this section, I think, in particular, captures just the way in which he, he pursues us, even when we're trying to run from him. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind in the midst of tears. I hid from him in underrunning laughter. Up vistaed hopes I sped and shot precipitated. Adown titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic in- instancy, they beat and a voice, a voice beat more instant than the feet. All things betray thee, who betrayest me? Now here is, is one man, one poet, reflecting on his own life, his own story, his own journey, and the ways in which he had tried to escape God's presence. Uh, whether it's, it's literally to go somewhere different or just to go somewhere different in your own mind or your headspace or your heart space, relational environment, the, the, the many different ways that we try to escape God's presence. And here the psalmist is saying, there is no escaping it. We go east, we go west, we go high, we go low. He is there. The all-encompassing, pursuing God is this hound of heaven. 
which I love even the, 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 the language, the picture that he paints in this poem, just undisturbed pace. He's coming after us. He's coming after us. He's faithful, continuing to invite, continuing to speak into our lives, continuing to tell, tell us, hey, everything that you're trying to pursue, life in and joy in elsewhere, it, it betrays you. It betrays you because it betrays me and life is found in the God who has made you. Even when we're frenetically running around trying to build something and get outside of his reign, he is unwaveringly pursuing us. He is this hound of heaven. But what about when the darkness feels all-consuming? The psalmist alludes to this, verses 11 and 12. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Consider the, the types of darkness that, that we all tend to carry. It could be a particular season that you're walking through right now. Maybe it's an area of grief or loss. Maybe it's a, an area of, of guilt or shame that you just carry with you, something from the past. You're just like, I cannot shake, but I know what I did. I know how that affected others. The darkness feels so pervasive. Maybe it's a, it's a pattern or a lifestyle, a pattern of sin that you just, you can't seem to escape or avoid as much as you're, you're trying and you're trying to, to grow and to change, but it's like you keep this magnetic pull back into that same space over and over again. Where do you feel the darkness? Is it maybe depression, anxiety, areas of mental health where, where, where it feels so oppressive and saying that the light of Christ doesn't seem to be lighting up here. That the, the, my life feels marked by darkness. And for all of us, even where, where, where it doesn't feel quite so heavy, we all have areas of darkness that we carry around with us, wondering, could God light up this area of my life where we feel most disillusioned? Remember, um, around the same time as the rock fight, eventful year, apparently, uh, we, we did a little trip uh, up to the, uh, some of the dunes around Lake Michigan as a family with cousins and aunts and uncles and grandparents and all that. And we were up top, uh, the, one of the, the biggest dune that we could find, and we're kind of hanging out, looking over the lake and looking over the other dunes and everywhere else. And I saw some older kids with a different group just running as fast as they could down the dune. You know, me at four or five or whatever I was, thought that look, looks like fun. Should probably try that. And was, as was typical uh, with my personality, I didn't say anything to anybody. I just kind of like made my way over. Uh, but I didn't run the exact same route that they did. I did a little bit off to the side where a bundle of trees was down toward the bottom. And I began running. And then I began spinning, head over heels, literally just barrel rolling all the way down. And I don't really have uh, a memory of me spinning through the air, but I do have a memory of my father grabbing me out of the air and then setting me back on my feet and then carrying me back to the top of the sand dune. To which I replied, that was fun, let's do it again. <laughs> but I wonder if there might be a picture for us in that, that where we feel so disillusioned, maybe life feels like it's spinning out of control right now. We can't even make up from down. There is a father who sees, who knows, who is deeply attentive. He is right there with you. He knows what he is up to in your life, in the particulars of it, even where it feels like it's only darkness. The God whose presence is light has particular design and intentionality 
in your life. And this takes us to the next section, starting verse 13. Four. You should always pay attention to the fours and therefores in Scripture. This is giving a, a line of reasoning, the, the logic of God, if you will. And really, this is, is giving us why the first 12 verses is not the oppressive presence of God, or the oppressive all knowledge of God, but rather it's for our good. Verse 13, four, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Why is God's presence, why is his perfect knowledge good news for us? Because all those who know God through Jesus, all those who have been made part of his family, who have God as Father. He has known us from the very beginning, even when we were being woven together in our mother's wombs. The language that is used here is, is, is that of an artist, one who is embroidering something and so intimately connected to, to what is being produced and, and so present and attentive to it. Uh, even down to the, the days, the, the ways that our, our days would unfold in our lives, that was being built into our life, even as we're being crafted in our mother's wombs, knitting us together. Uh, this, this portion of this psalm um, is particularly significant for, for my family, and especially my wife. Uh, when she was in the womb, uh, my mother-in-law, Nancy, was, was 23 weeks pregnant, uh, so my wife Erin was, uh, was, was growing inside, and uh, my mother-in-law was a labor and delivery nurse at the time, and uh, if you know her, which I don't think any of you do, but you should get to know her, uh, there's no slowing her down, and so she's like, yeah, I'm going to keep working until I have this baby. Um, so 23 weeks, she's at, working full days um, at the hospital, and all of a sudden she starts getting some, some shooting pain in her abdomen and her shoulder and, and trying to figure out, okay, what's going on? It's like, well, I'm in a hospital, so I guess I can just like lay in this bed and I'll, I'll ask some of my friends to come over and, and check things out. And they begin running some tests and investigating and it turned out uh, her abdominal cavity was, was filling with blood. And they begin doing a little bit more of uh, the tests and, and learned that the placenta was, was abrupting. It was actually ripping off. And so blood was, was pouring into her uh, instead of the, the life-giving nutrition that should have been through it. And it's so like, okay, this is, all sorts of questions started to rise to the, to the foreground. You know, in the late 80s, 23 weeks, uh, you're not viable outside the womb. They didn't have the technology for it. And so delivering early would mean, would mean uh, death for, for, for Aaron. Um, but also they were wondering about risk for her even if she stayed. It was also a risk for my mother-in-law. She's, she's growing this child and bleeding on the inside. And even if, if things continued on and, and they both were okay, uh, very real risk of, of brain damage, permanent brain damage for, for Aaron as she's, she's growing in the womb. And so she immediately went on, my mother-in-law went on, on bed rest and that continued that way until uh, my wife was, was born uh, for, for many weeks later. Beginning that night, one of the pastors from their church came and then he was followed over the next several weeks by a whole community from their church, stepping in, caring for the two other kids that were already at home. Uh, much of the time was, was spent at the hospital as well. And from the very beginning, prayed this 
psalm, prayed this prayer, declared these words over my wife's life. She is fearfully and wonderfully made, being woven together in her mother's womb. God knowing intimately, knowing perfectly. And those weeks later when when Aaron was born, they're able to to do a little bit more investigating into, okay, how, how did this play out? How did this happen? The placenta actually knitted itself back together in the womb such that Aaron had no complications, uh, no effects from this, uh, which, which stunned those that were around and saw the story unfold. Now, I, I share this recognizing uh, there are many different experiences and stories around pregnancy, around losses of babies, and stories that don't turn out like this. But let this be a window into how God knows each of, each of the, the children that are growing inside the womb. And whether the story turns out well or it, it's much harder, filled with loss, the full spectrum, God knows and is weaving together with, with particular design, knowing the days, the intentionality, the purposes, and he is the God who is crafting that story. He's, he's the God who's crafting our stories. And he's done it from the moment of con- conception, knowing these, these little image bears as they're growing and being built together and pieced together with, with all of our uniqueness and, and what he wants to do in our lives. No two lives look the same. No two skill sets or personalities look the same. But God has such pursuit of us, such knowledge of us that carries us through the duration of our lives and into eternity with him. This speaks to God's omnificence. God's omnificence. God has complete power of creation such that he intentionally weaves together life itself. This is the God that we serve. This is the God who knows us. This is the God who is present with us. He was there from the very beginning. And so we turn in verses 17 and 18 with this wonder and awe with the psalmist. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. We are designed to be stunned by the mind of this God, by the presence of this God, by the pursuit, the seeking out after of this God. And then we have verse 19. If we've had a lot in the psalm so far that you may find on a postcard or a t-shirt or a coffee mug, um, I've yet to see the next few verses on a coffee mug. Um, in fact, a lot of times when you, uh, when you hear these preached or read aloud in a worship service or whatever else, there's like boldness and confidence going through the psalm, and then you get to this section and it's like mumbling. It's like, hey, what, why can't I hear anything? Let me tell you why. Verse 19, oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Now, quick disclaimer, uh, verse 19, that slay, this is not like a Gen Z urban dictionary, like slay queen or whatever. This is not, I don't know where mine goes, but this is not, it actually means to, to slay. The psalmist is asking God to bring future judgment on evil in the world into the present moment. So God, I know you're a God of holiness. I know you're a God of justice. You're a God of righteousness. I'm asking that you would bring it to bear on the evil that's right in front of me. And, and I think that the starkness here, it, 
to our modern ears, it, it awakens us. It's like, well, can, can the Bible say that? Like, is that something I should actually read or feel or be in line with? Or is this kind of like David or whoever wrote this, like breaking from God's heart and design? Some, some scholars have also said there is such a, a quick shift in tone and emotion in this psalm that it was probably two psalms and like some later editor just like jammed them together because, I don't know, they wanted even 150. So like, all right, these two, we'll just like, we'll combine those. But even the fact that it, that it strikes us as so odd, like such a weird move, should tell us it didn't come from a human mind, but this is actually the mind and the heart of God inviting us into something. And perhaps this is exactly the right response in view of who God is, the vastness, the beauty of his presence, of his knowledge, of his immensity. Perhaps this is what we're designed for. Derek Kidner says it this way, the very clarity of the vision makes the anomaly of evil, boasting in full view of God, intolerable. The abrupt change in the psalm from reverie to resolve is disturbing but wholly biblical in its realism. Wholly biblical in its realism. This, this reverie, this wonder, this awe, this worship, and then turns. And it should call us to ask the question, what do we do with the evil that we see in our world? Yes, this beautiful God who's designed us for, for rich relationship, for trust in him, for love toward one another, to, to give of our lives for the good of others. But what about the exploitation of children? And what about those who abandon their families? What about the pervasive abuse that has existed, that continues to, to take place? What about where people misuse power? What about where, where people uh, misuse uh, their sexuality and go outside of God's design for it? What about how, how so often money and greed and consumerism drives our society such that people are marginalized and forgotten? And we turn toward our own hearts. We see the, the darkness in our own souls. We see ourselves respond to a loved one, a friend. And we, we see things that we engage in and we run in, into again and again. I just, even this past week, seeing areas of darkness in my heart, it's like, really, still? Like, really? Am I not, am I not done with this? Am I not, have I not moved on from this? Like, why is this rising up in my heart and spilling out in my life yet again? What do we do with that evil? What the psalmist is saying is God, as I consider your vast knowledge, your vast presence, the fact that you've known me from the beginning, I'm overwhelmed by it, and I align with you. I'm I'm on your side. Uh, No, I'm not perfect. No, I I have have plenty of things that are are broken and sinful and and need changing in me, but I'm I'm with you. I want to be with this God. I want to submit to this God and find my hope, find my life, find my joy in you. It reminds me a little bit of um, What About Bob? I don't know if you guys have seen that movie, 90s maybe. Um, Bill Murray plays this kind of, I don't know, he's, he's an odd character, uh, but he's seeking help from a number of different therapists and just has all these, these different run-ins with people. Um, and Richard Dreyfus is the, the counselor and Bill Murray, Bob Wiley, he's sitting across from, from the, the doctor. The doctor's like, all right, do you wanna, do you wanna talk about your divorce? He just kind of looked at him. So, Doc, there are two kinds of people in the world, those who love Neil Diamond and those who don't. My ex-wife loved him. 
as if that was to, to summarize the full extent of his relational strife with his ex-wife. Uh, but he gives us something of the either-or reality of either we are with God or we are not. And the psalmist is declaring, God, I'm, I'm with you. I'm siding with you. And the language here of, of, of hatred, our mind probably goes to this kind of like emotion-driven vitriol that we just despise people. No, it should be understood as a, as a genuine opposition to that which is in opposition to God. Where, where lives are, are built, rejecting the, the reign and the rule of God, where we see it in ourselves, tendencies to build something apart from his voice and his reign. To say, I'm in opposition to that. I love the things that God loves, and I hate the things that God hates. I'm standing with him, and so I'm, I'm, I'm aligned with him and against those that would stand against him. Augustine put it this way. I hated in them their iniquities. I loved their creation. That neither on account of the vices you hate the person, nor on account of the person love the vices. See, that the way that we are to love others is by standing in opposition to the things that would lead to death, to their destruction. And then the psalmist turns in the last couple of verses and brings the same judgment, the same scrutiny that he just put toward God's enemies upon himself. Verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So he's saying, okay, scrutiny on, on, on God's enemies. Yes, I'm, I'm in opposition to them, but, but, but actually I need to evaluate my own heart, my own soul, be honest before you, come out into the light before you. And the reality is when we do that, none of us pass the test. You consider our lives, even the ways in which we try to pursue being good enough, how we fall short, how we have mixed motives, how we use our, our, our voices, our strength, our resources in ways that are oriented around the self rather than the worship of God and the good of neighbor. All of us fall short. And so when taken honestly, that puts us in the category of God's enemies, those who would build a life apart from him, apart from his reign, rejecting him, rejecting what he would have for us. So we have to ask the question, what, what do we do in the face of that? What, what, what does God do as he approaches his enemies, as God took on human flesh in the person of Jesus? How did he stand in opposition to evil in the world and toward his enemies? What did he do when he stepped into the human story to put down evil? And the answer is, he laid down his life for, for his enemies. The way in which God stood against his enemies is by dying for them. It's by hanging upon the tree, by, by having his life suffer the judgment that we deserve, to be crushed because of our sin, because of our iniquities, inviting us to trust in him and in him find life, uh, to, to receive this invitation to be able to come into the presence of God. And this is what the psalmist lays out for us. It's a, it's a to give you a Latin phrase, the quorum Deo way of living. Quorum Deo, which, which just means the, the, the face of God or the presence of God. And historically, it's been used throughout the church. It's the call to live the entirety of our lives before the face of God, under the authority of God and to the glory of God. The only way we can do that 
The only way we can feel that the freedom and the joy of this omniscient God, this omnipresent God, this all-powerful God who has made us is if we are in Jesus. If we have looked to him, we have trusted him and his righteousness and his life, we have turned from our sin and received in ourselves his righteousness. Then we can come before the living God and not fear his presence, but be drawn into it with awe and with, under, with wonder, with humility. And to know that, that his knowledge of us is for our good, that he knows us, but he perfectly loves us because of Jesus. But how often are we blind to the face of our God? How often are we, we blind to the face of our Father, even when he's right before us? There's a movie that came out, I don't know, maybe a couple decades ago, uh, called Blood Diamond. And it took place um, during the, kind of the height of the, the conflict um, in Sierra Leone and some other countries in uh, West Africa where a lot of diamonds were found. And they were called blood diamonds or conflict diamonds because it led to a lot of both of those. Um, political tension and different factions growing, just like a lot of, of fighting, little militias that would grow. Uh, another thing that would take place uh, where, where children were abducted, it still happens worldwide, but children were abducted from their homes, brainwashed, and turned into child soldiers. And that happened to one particular local family. Uh, Solomon was the father, uh, Dia was the son, and Dia was just, I don't know, maybe 10 years old, eight, 9, 10 years old, uh, was taken from his home. Solomon was made to work the, the mine, or to go mine for, for the diamonds. And Solomon has this quest to get back to his son. And as he's mining, he, um, he finds a particularly large diamond and then buries it, knowing that he's going to want to come back to it later to be his escape route. Well, in the course of the movie, he meets up with a, a South African no, Rhodesian, I think he is. Um, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, Archer, uh, is his name in the movie. And they, 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 their paths overlap. They both want to get to the diamond and have that be their means of, of escape and for a different kind of life. And toward the very end, um, they're at the place where the diamond was buried. They were able to, uh, to fend off the soldiers and, and Archer shot one of them, he's laying there, and, 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 and Solomon is, is, is digging for the diamond. And all of a sudden, they see Dia, his son, one of these child soldiers who had been abducted, brainwashed, standing there before his father. And the, the son, Dia, he grabs the nine milliliter that was, was fallen with, from the soldier and then points it at his father not even recognizing him as his father. If he's seen him as his father, it doesn't mean what it used to. And Solomon stops and just gazes into his eyes with the gun pointed at his chest. And he begins moving toward his son. And he says this, you are Dia Vandi of the proud Mindy. Your mother loves you. And she waits by the fire making plantains and red palm stew with your sister Nyanda and the new baby. The cows wait for you, and Babu, the wild dog, who minds no one but you. Then he continues to move closer, move closer, move closer to his son. And I am your father who loves you, and you will go home with me and be my son. And he says, as he says those last words, that the gun is now touching his skin, but then embraces his son, and Dia's body just goes limp. He drops the gun and is just enveloped in the embrace of his father. And tears are just coming down both of their faces. Might this be a picture for us 
that because of, of the different illusions that we get drawn into, the different ways of being, the different pursuits, the different life that we're trying to build, the different things that we're convinced, this is where it's found. We miss the face of our Father who's inviting us, who's beckoning us, who's pursuing us, who's coming toward us. And we would even want to, to kill that vision, to kill that voice, to, to, to rid our lives of it, not knowing that this is our invitation home. This is the God who is everywhere, who sees everything, who is coming after us as the hound of heaven and saying, come to me as your father. I'm your father. You are my son. You are my daughter. I love you. And I want you to come home with me. May we be those who have ears to hear, hearts that are tender toward the voice of this God and receive the invitation of our father to return to him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that because of you, we have God as our Father. Jesus, thank you that because of you, the the things that we want to keep tucked away in our lives, the the areas of darkness that have plagued us, uh, the season that we're in, all of that you are wielding somehow, somehow for our transformation, for our good, for our renewal, for the glory of God our Father, and that you're present and attentive and you're kind through all of it. Uh, our hearts need convincing. And it's not something we can convince ourselves of. At times, we've seen too much. We've walked through too much. We don't necessarily want to grow cynical, but sometimes it's just really hard not to. Would you fill us with wonder again? Would you give us a, a taste of your delight, of your joy? Oh, just to convince us again that the God who is really is there and he really is good and he really is pursuing us. Spirit, would you do that? Because we cannot, we cannot create that on our own. And maybe for some of us, we feel like we're kind of at the end. Kind of feel like, the, what, what prayers do I have left to pray? What ounce of hope or desire or feeling is there? And for all of us, just the areas of heaviness that we, we continue to carry. May we receive your invitation. May you give us a heart that can begin to, to, to see the face of our Father again. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.